So uh, there's a portal that's open today. It's exciting. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Stranger Things right before I go to sleep at night. Stranger Things series two, amazing. It's awesome, right? Um, and, and in that, there's this, I won't give anything away. Don't do the la, 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 la. Listen to my illustration. Okay, it's good. All right. Um, but there are these two worlds going on at the same time. And it doesn't take you very many episodes into the first season to figure out that there's something going on beneath the surface or in the surface or upside down in the surface. Oh, man. All right. So, but there's this portal that, that opens up that allows for people to go into this different world. And, you know, at one point, we as humanity, we were talking about the fountain of youth. If we could just make it to the fountain of youth, and drink from that water, then we would be all set. Like Indiana Jones stuff. We moved on from Indiana Jones, all right? Now we're talking about portals. Now we want to find the right universe that's going to give us what we need. And I want to affirm that. I want to affirm that, that that's actually a biblical longing, that we would be longing for a new world where a disaster wouldn't strike, where people wouldn't shoot people uh, as they're attending a concert, um, where... Uh, tyrannical leaders wouldn't be leading countries where people would have access to, to clean water, where people would have food, where as jo- uh, Jordan prayed, uh, where justice would roll down, right, down this mountain of God to all people that there is a new world that's coming and, and we as humanity are looking for the portal. And the way we do it is not through Jesus. Often we look for it through a new diet. We look for it through a new job, a new spouse, a, a new house, a new destination to visit, a new achievement, a new purpose, a new salary. We look for this portal in so many different ways. And yet when we finally get to step through the portal and we're living in that new world, we're so disappointed. But Jesus has opened up this portal. He's opened up this portal where no one will be disappointed. I think it was Napoleon Dynamite, the great philosopher and theologian, right? Uh, Or Pedro, actually, his counterpart, where if you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true, right? How many of you have seen Napoleon Dynamite? Okay, the rest of the half of the room should repent and um, go and see that. Uh, You're missing something in life. There's a portal waiting for you in that film. But this portal, this portal that's been opened, how did it open? How did it open? And this is what we looked at last week, okay? We're in the book of John. Jordan read that for us uh, this morning. We're in the book of John chapter 20. We're almost done. But the portal opened because Jesus came as an alien, right? You're like, what am I, what did I sign up for? Like, who is this guy? We, we already talked about this way back at the beginning, John 1, that the way that John, Jesus's best friend, talks about Jesus is not like Jesus is an alien, like green and like looking to come through someone's body or something strange, tentacles, not that, but alien as in he's foreign. He's coming into this world. He's otherworldly. In fact, we believe that Jesus is the creator, that he created and made this world. And he actually came into the world and took on flesh. He became a man. So Jesus comes as an alien. He lives roughly 33 to 36 years on the earth. Lives a perfect life, unlike you and I, right? Never deviates from what he's supposed to be doing. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at the past or the last few days of Jesus' life. And last week we looked at the reality that Jesus went to the cross, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was crucified and condemned 
for our punishment. He was put on the cross for us. We've sung about that already. He was placed inside of a tomb on Friday. And then there was rest. There was a day of rest, the Sabbath, which the Jewish people would have celebrated. And they wouldn't have gone back to the tomb. They would have, they would have stayed around home and they would have rested and they would have worshiped God. Now, I want to enter into that day of rest just for a second. Okay, this would have been Saturday. Imagine that you put all of your stocks right? You put all your money in a certain stock that's supposed to go on the rise. You bet everything on George St. Pierre who won last night in his comeback, all right? You put everything on this relationship. You put everything in getting this job and this new future. You put everything into this new home. You put everything there, and then it's all gone. A flood hits. The stock market crashes to never come back again. That person that you've been longing to be with passes away. Whatever it is that you're going after, you're not getting it back. The disciples have put the past three years of their life into following Jesus. They're banking their everything on him, and now he's dead, and they're supposed to be resting. Can you imagine the turmoil that's going on? If you're here right now and all of your money crashed yesterday, how good are you feeling? You're like, I'm enjoying my Tim Hortons and my noisy brown paper bag. Right? I can always hear where people are eating Tim Hortons all the time. We actually hear it in the sermon. So stop doing that, Tim Hortons. Give us plastic bags or, I don't know, just hand the muffin to us. That's my rebuke on Tim Hortons, by the way, not you. Why would you do that and then send people up to a movie? Dumb, dumb. Anyway, um, so he's gone. Jesus is dead. And then they rush to the tomb on, on Sunday morning. The women go to the tomb and John specifically looks at Mary and she arrives at the tomb and Jesus's body is now gone. So not only are we not going to have the living Jesus with us, but now not even his body is there for us to memorialize or visit. And here's the text, John chapter 20, verse one and two. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple is John, the guy who's writing, um, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So she arrives and she sees that this heavy stone has been moved. Now the stone probably weighed between uh, 2,000 and 4,000 pounds. So it would have had to have been someone or a couple people of significance who was moving that stone out of the way. Now what she thought was somebody took the body, right? They have moved him. They've taken him out of the tomb. Grave robbery, that was a pretty normal thing of that day. So people would come in, steal people's bodies. Really strange, but they would. Um, and actually, the Jewish leaders said... We heard that Jesus is going to rise or that his disciples think he's going to rise. So would you put a Roman guard in front of the tomb? And we see that in Matthew 27. We're not going to look at that this morning, but another account in scripture. And so grave robbery was not uncommon. But you have to hear this, that nobody was thinking resurrection. Nobody was thinking resurrection. Sometimes we read ancient accounts and we're like, ah, oh, those nice little people expecting people to rise from the dead. No, 
Not at all. They saw death all the time and they never saw resurrection. Nobody's expecting Jesus or anyone else to rise from the dead. So let's get our minds around that. As she's going to the tomb that morning, she is not saying, oh man, I wonder, right? She's saying, I expect a a stone to be there, his body to be there. And when it's not, first assumption is someone has taken the body. And so what does she do? She runs back to Simon, Peter, and, and John. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that. I really do. Because that would be something in my arrogance I would write in there, right? Like I beat him, right? I'm not going to call anyone out today that I could beat, probably most of you. But, um, you know, both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. And, and this just plays into the validity of scripture. Like who writes that? right? Unless there's this, this playfulness, because then Peter, who could say like, yeah, you beat me in the race, but you were a coward. You were a pansy. You stood outside the tomb, stooping to look in. He saw the linen clothes lying there, but didn't go in. Pansy John, right? Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, saw the linen cloths lying there. I, I love this, right? There's real people involved in this. Someone could have gone back to Simon Peter, said, did John really beat you? He's like, yeah, but he waited outside. I went in, right? And here we go, the face cloth. The reason why I mention that, by the way, is just because um, many people believe that scripture um, is false, that scripture is man-made, that, that scripture is just a bunch of facts that people developed on the side. But there's so much personality that goes into this and verifi- verifiable uh, facts that could have been checked during that day, uh, which just stand up the, the case uh, for scripture. Um, verse eight, then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they get there, the, the doorway to the tomb would have been smaller than a meter. So not very big. So in order to go into the tomb, you would have had to like get down on your knees and crawl in there. There was no like standing up, uh, moving all around. They didn't waste space, right? So it was very, very tiny. Um, and Mary, who, who saw into the tomb, her, uh, the evidence of her being a witness wouldn't have stood up under the Jewish legal system. A woman would not have been an admissible witness. But now what we have is two men. Two men together, right? That will stand up in any court in that day. Two men seeing that the linen cloths have been laid there, that Jesus isn't here at all. And what happens in verse 9 is it says, or in verse 8, is that they believed, They saw it and and believed. They believed what? They believed that his body had been removed? No. They believed that Jesus had risen. They believed that this was a supernatural thing that had taken place. They believed something that no one else believed in that day. Right? They were countercultural in their belief completely. In, In John's heart, he's saying, I know that Jesus is alive. I know that Jesus has conquered death. I know that what Jesus has said has now come true. He believed. How did John believe this? Well, Jesus told John and the other disciples a bunch of times. I want to bombard us with uh, five scriptures, right? I'm going to be quick in this, but I want to overwhelm us with the reality that Jesus predicted his own death and his own resurrection. And the disciples heard it. So here we go. John 2, 18 through 22. The Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you do to show us for, the, for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They were in the temple as Jesus was speaking. 
The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. So that's the text we're in now. They remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture that the word that Jesus had spoken. John 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Let's keep going. Mark 8, 31. Jesus began to teach them that the son of man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, be killed. We looked at that last week. After three days, rise again. Mark 9, 31 and 32. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And lastly, Mark 10. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So they're getting to experience. All right, John, Simon, Peter, believing. All right, Jesus has risen. But then the biggest question is, well, where is he? Where is he? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Where, where is Jesus? But if you're here and you're saying, hey, I don't believe in the resurrection. I think that all of this is farce, a farce. I think this is a joke. I, I'm here because someone dragged me here, made me be here. But here's where I stand. I don't believe that you're here by accident. I believe that you're here on purpose. And so since you're here, um, I would love for you to consider the resurrection this morning. And quickly, there's really four options uh, for what happened to the body of Jesus. Number one is that his body was stolen. Body was stolen. And what we see in Matthew 28, uh, 12 through 15, let's see, did we do this? Uh, Nope, that's not it. So I have a Bible here. Let me read that. The Bible is not just uh, something to look at. It's to be read from directly sometimes. So Matthew 28, 12 to 15 says this, And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Huh. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So that's one option, is that the body was stolen, except we have... The scripture saying that, no, the body wasn't stolen, and that whole thing was a a conspiracy theory set up uh, as a plot to keep people away from following Jesus. So I don't believe the body was stolen. The second thing is some religions believe that Jesus didn't die, that, uh, that Jesus was removed before he was put on the cross, and God took him away and put someone else, the cross, in his place. But the problem with that is that Jesus's mom was standing right there. Right? Like, I, I can understand, I, I'm father of four, I can understand being like, wow, that really doesn't uh, look like my son all that much. But the demeanor, the language that, that comes from my children, right? I, I know them. I know them. I can hear them in different rooms. I know who's talking what way. I know them. Jesus' mom and, and his disciples, some of them are standing there. 
and they're looking up at Jesus and Jesus hasn't changed. He's being crucified, killed. He's talking about forgiving them, uh, forgive them. How many of us, if we're being crucified, are like, I just wanna forgive you all right now, right? Uh, probably not me, right? I'm just being honest. It's probably not gonna flow from me, but this was Jesus. Jesus is thinking about where his mom's gonna live. He's, he's doing all this business on the cross that just seems absolutely absurd for a human unless they're actually the human paying for the sin of the world. So I don't believe that Jesus was taken up before the cross and Judas was put in his place. I believe that this was full on Jesus on the cross. A third option that we have is that Jesus left. So yeah, we believe that Jesus was crucified, almost killed, but he didn't die and they put him inside of a tomb and somehow the next morning he got up and like pushed that 2,000 to 4,000 pound stone out of the way and just got up. He's like, that was a really bad day the other day. Let's not do that again, right? Like I play ultimate Frisbee and the next morning I have a hard time getting out of bed, all right? Jesus was somewhere between 33 and 36. Same physical things would have gone on, all right? Um, and Jesus had just been beaten down. There's no way he's getting up even two days later to remove that, that stone. By the way, Romans were really good at killing people, so they made sure that Jesus was fully dead. So we have that the body was stolen, that Jesus never actually went to the cross, that Jesus got up out of the grave himself, but wasn't really dead. Or the fourth option, which I believe is the true option, is that he's alive. He's alive. Now we come at that with three different heart conditions in the text. And I believe that we probably have these heart conditions moving as well. Number one, we can come to the resurrection of Jesus with unbelief, saying there's no way I would ever believe that. But we all have a condition. There's no way I could ever believe that unless Jesus showed up here today. There's no way I could believe that unless, you know, my husband was healed of this disease. There's no way I can believe, we all have a condition. Right? That if God did something, that would be like, oh my goodness, okay, I can't deny that. And we'll see that this morning. So we enter into this with unbelief, or we come in with fear. There's uncertainty. Wow, what if Jesus really did raise from the dead? What would that do? What, what effect would that have on me? What would people think of me? How would I have to act now? What would I have to do with my, my money? What would I have to do with my time? Wow, there's fear, there's uncertainty around what's going to happen in my life if I actually get behind this Jesus and then the, the third heart we'll see is a heart that's undivided, a heart that lingers, a heart that just wants Jesus. And so we're gonna see this. Uh, we believe this portal is open today. It's a proverbial portal, okay? It's not real. Like you're not gonna jump through the subwoofer and something's gonna change. Um, but we believe that, that, that you can encounter Jesus today. I really believe that wholeheartedly, that you can't plan the moment you're gonna encounter God. It happens. And it's not on your schedule. It really is on his schedule. So we'll look at three encounters and we'll do it as briefly as possible. Uh, but the first encounter, okay, the first encounter is with Mary. So we've already seen Mary. Here we go. Here's her encounter in John 20, 10 through 15. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Notice in verse 10, I'm gonna go back to this. The disciples went back to their homes. They see that, that Jesus isn't here. They believe that he raised. They're like, all right, let's go back and eat breakfast, right? They just get on with their day. But what does Mary do? She, she lingers there. She lingers. Uh, last year was the most incredible Super Bowl ever. Uh, American sport, football, Patriots won. Uh, it was 24-3 uh, in the third quarter. I'm losing my mind. I'm trying to be a Christian in my house with people over and not throw things at the television. Um, so yeah, it was really hard. I felt the spirit leading me during that time. And then uh, they came back and won. So the spirit was leading them to victory as well. Um, so we can pray for more of spirit-filled patriots to play. Uh, not today, it's their week off. I know a lot of you were wondering, uh, but imagine leaving. I considered going to bed in, at halftime. Imagine going to bed at halftime and then the next morning you wake up and it's like greatest comeback ever. And this is kind of what it was like for the disciples. The disciples leave, but Mary stays and she lingers. She lingers. Her attention couldn't be put on anything else. I'm sure she hadn't eaten. She was fixed on Jesus. And lingering is staying in the moment. Staying in the moment. We're really good as a, at a, as a culture at moving on, right? I love to-do lists, right? I have digital to-do lists that continuously are being you know, things are coming into it, which I hate, but I'm, I'm knocking them off and I feel so good because that means I get to move on to something else. We love moving on, but here's what God loves. God loves lingering. God's not interested in a mere transaction with you. Oh, okay, I'm, uh, my Bible reading today, John 20, da 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 believe me, I'm in his name, did it, boom, done. Gotta pray, Lord, help me as I'm going today, help me uh, eat, help me to do well today, and all those other people do some good stuff for them too. Amen, boom. Like a vital, vibrant relationship with the living God is happening because I just did those two things. No, that's transactional. I did, I did my part, I did my piece, right? Now, God, you owe me. And many of us think that God owes us because we do things. If it's like we get him in an arm bar, like, oh, I didn't know you were going to read all of John 21 as well. Like, oh, I'll do whatever you want. Let me go. God is a God who loves lingering. He loves lingering, not mere transactions. And lingering moves beyond the content, all right? So we start with content, and it moves beyond the content to the person, so you imagine a band, right? Band goes and plays, blah, 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 right? Most of us are just there for the content, and then we leave. But some of us are groupies, roadies, whatever, that we just love the band, right? So we're so excited about the music they play, but then we hang around after for the band because we like them, not just the content that they put out. That's the type of thing God wants to do in our hearts as well. It's not just about the content of who he is. It's about him. And you can't get to enjoying a vibrant, moving relationship with him with mere transactions. You can't. There has to be this, this lingering that takes place. And what lingering does with, with Mary is it brings her to encounter two angels and Jesus. She just thinks that he's the gardener. Right, lingering brings her into these encounters that if it was just a transaction, oh, resurrection, I believe it, done going home to eat. If it was just that, she never would have had this encounter. And if you're like me, you want to experience God. You don't just want to experience knowledge about God. 
You don't want a little theological diploma saying that you learned a lot about God, right? Got my master's this year, woohoo, right? Um, theological education, yay. But all that says is that you know a lot about God. It proves nothing about how you know God. You can't get that in an institution. You can only get that by lingering. You can only get that by not being in a rush, by not moving on, by not saying, okay, God, I put in my time. It's time to go. Uh, sermon long enough, service long enough, on my way. Our relationship deepens with him in our lingering because it brings us into an encounter with him. Now, Mary is willing to take the body of Jesus. In fact, she wants it. Right? I'm, I'm ready to, to take it. I'm ready to take ownership of it, prepare it, bury it properly. My question though, Jesus appears to her. Why doesn't Jesus just appear to her right away? Why does he let her weep? Why does he make her go through emotional turmoil of separation, right? Why doesn't he just come in and save the day right away? Because he could have. But then I was asking myself the question this week, why do we throw surprise parties, right? Why do we almost lie to people for months on end so that we can get them in a room where a bunch of people jump up surprised and our faces are just locked onto theirs as they're overwhelmed, I've seen several surprise parties and I'd never seen someone walk in and everyone's like, surprise, I'm like, oh good, I was waiting for a party, right? It's like, oh, you know, and then they look, they're like, you, I'm like, yeah, you know, if it's me, you know, my wife, I'm like, man, that's gonna earn me so many bonus points upon my bonus points because I'm such a great husband and so, I mean, just, just joking. But that, that whole idea of, of surprising, right? We, we make people wait because we know how epic it's gonna be for them. If you tell people, hey, be there 6.30, we're gonna throw your party, all your friends are gonna be there, that's nice. But when all their friends undeceptively, I'm trying to think of how to say this, right? We don't wanna lie to people, but we're trying to set up this whole thing. Why do we surprise people? Why do we wait for the perfect moment to get engaged? Why do people not say, well, you're a woman and you look nice. Yeah, I mean, you're a man and you look pretty nice too. And like, why don't we just do this thing? And sure, here's a, right? There's this whole thought process. If that's you, you're lame, right? Like think beyond that, okay? Um, but why do we go through the, the trouble to, to create this elaborate plan of, of how to get to the right place at the right time with the right ring, right person? Why do we wait to declare uh, pregnancy, right? Why do we wait for all these things? It's in us because we wanna see the joy in the other people's eyes. We wanna see the joy that you're gonna be grandparents, like, ah, oh, amazing. This is what Jesus does with Mary, I think. That he still doesn't give it away. Oh, you're the gardener, what have you done with his body? And then what does Jesus do? Jesus said to her, Mary. And I just imagine this smile that he's always smiled at her before. Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. This happens because she lingers with him. She's lingering around the tomb waiting. And so my encouragement to us is be with him. Don't, don't rush. 
and you say, oh, I only have this much time, great, but the 10 minutes doesn't end when your 10 minutes is over, right? Jesus is not limited to like your little closet that you pray in at your house or your room or your metro, whatever. Like Jesus is with you all the time, accessible, fully accessible, so you don't need to rush through things. You can linger even in the busyness of your life. You can linger. You can have a heart that lingers in a world of distraction. Because what we see about Jesus is that he often offered the most profound things about who he is when the crowds had left. When there were just a few, that's when Jesus would really open up about who he really was and what he was doing. My encouragement is don't be content with content examination, but linger. Allow for your life to be one of lingering. Most of you are are driven people, I'm certain. Right? We want to get stuff done. We want to learn. We want to graduate. We want to take over the world. Ah, all that. But linger. Because if you are in the whole world and lose your soul, what good is that? And honestly, your great, great grandkids probably won't even know your name. But the Lord does. And he calls you to linger with him. In fact, he wants you to linger. And then we get to share with others out of our lingering. You know, I can tell you a lot about my wife, but most of it is not gonna be facts. I'm not going to say that she's, I'm gonna, I don't know, 5'2", is that, is that a good height, honey? Yeah, that's good, all right. I gave you the extra half inch, I think. Uh, like, I'm not just gonna say she's 5'2", I'm definitely not gonna tell you her pounds. I'm not gonna say any of the, the facts, right? I'm not gonna tell you that stuff. I'm gonna tell you stories. I'm gonna tell you about why I love her. It's going to come out of my lingering with her that you're going to know, wow, Dwight has been with her. Dwight has spent time with her. Some of us think about telling others about Jesus as this mere like, oh, I need to tell them A, B, B.1, B.2, then C, and if they say this, then I'm going to jump to F. We think of that instead of talking about someone that you've been with for years or, or a moment as soon as I met Jesus, I wanted to tell people about him because it was, sounded crazy, absolutely crazy. But if this is true, then I wanted everyone to know about him, that we share out of our lingering. And Jesus tells Mary to do that. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So the first encounter is, is one with a heart that wants to linger. The second encounter is with the disciples and the disciples are full of fear. Here we go, John 20, 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, all in the first day, first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So Jesus breaks through a locked door uh, and just shows up in their presence. Now the Jews were the ones that killed Jesus, were responsible for his death, Okay. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you hold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And so what we see is that the disciples are are just full of fear. I mean, Jesus has to tell them twice, peace be with you. Right? Someone comes at you um, out of the upside down world. You're going to need to hear peace be with you uh, from someone. This is kind of scary when someone breaks into your house. And it might be a ghost or it might be something. But when you get to touch real hands and get to touch a real side, they're, they're relief, relieved. 
Now we can sympathize with, with these men. I mean, how many of us are fearful? At least, at least two of us are. Someone's responding, right? Like, I mean, two of us are. So pray for us, fast for us this week, that we would be bold. Uh, but disciples are, are fearful, and, and we are fearful. And oftentimes, we're fearful of things that we shouldn't, or we would counsel other people not to be fearful of. And Jesus breaks in to that room and into our lives as well, and he says, peace, peace be with you. Because his peace, fear, uh, we have this little book, um, I think it's Malachi's book, uh, but it's called The What If Monster, right? And it's like, what if I go to school and everyone makes fun of me? And what if I try a new thing and I fall down and everyone laughs and what if, right? And it's just going through all these what ifs. But then the second half of the book is like, well, what if I go to school and everyone's my friend? And what, like, we get locked up in fear with these what ifs, right? What if I share or talk about Jesus with, with my child who doesn't really want to hear, and what are they going to do with me? Or what if I want to pray for someone to be healed and they reject me? Or what if I want to be generous and someone is, is rejecting that? Or, you know, we get all these what ifs that, that show up. But it's his peace, it's his peace that we need. Because what his peace does is it moves us from fear of what could be lost to dream of the possibilities that resurrection power can give. That's what his peace does. Rather than thinking, if I do this, this is gonna be lost, we now begin to think, man, if I'm moving in, in his presence and he's leading me, then imagine all the possibilities of what could take place. It's completely different. If Jesus raises from the dead and shows up in a locked room, man, what could happen in, in bound up nations that say the gospel can't come here? Ah, What would happen if we were generous to people and sent them into those nations to be a blessing to seek the welfare of that nation, but also to be talking about their lingering relationship with this Jesus. What could happen? What could happen? Because it's, it's his presence that's our real security. It really is. And this is what we forget most often. We forget that Jesus is here with us. I do all the time. Brother Lawrence has this, has this book, little, little book, practicing the presence of God, right? And it's learning to actually be reminded all the time that, ah, that, oh, Lord, you're with me. Lord, you're with me. You're with me. You're with me. How much changes when we know that the Lord is walking with us and the Lord is, is in our presence, or rather we're in the presence of the Lord. We, we need this peace. We need this peace. And this peace isn't like this little like self-hug, I've got peace like a river, right? That's dumb, because rivers destroy people. Have you read the history of Montreal trying to get, it, it's a horrific, horrific history, but people trying to get onto the island died all the time in the St. Lawrence River, right? Rivers are not nice and peaceful and calm. They're just not. And Jesus is saying, I want for my peace to go out into the world like the St. Lawrence River, to devour people with my river of grace and mercy and love. And I want it to go out through you and you're gonna need my peace because his movement of peace, the movement of peace with God, right? You can be made at peace with God. This movement will go out through the disciples in that locked room and goes out through the disciples in this unlocked room. This is what Jesus does. He says, I wanna transform the world. I'm gonna do it through my people. 
And I feel like we don't, we don't hear that often. Oh, you hear it, right? You can get the content. You can probably say, this is how Dwight's gonna apply this, right? If you've been here long enough. But it's one thing to, to hear it and acknowledge it. And it's another thing to believe it. That, oh, I really am like God's way of reaching my neighborhood. Wow. I've never sat with that weight. And it's, it's not a burden that you have to carry. The spirit will do that. But then he calls you to declare and demonstrate, to tell. And Jesus is standing here in a room with his disciples saying, you're gonna go out to the people who just killed me. You're my way of reaching them. If you're a disciple, what are you thinking? I'm gonna die. Jesus says, my peace is with you. And you're not alone. Jesus breathes on them and, and shows them that the spirit of God is going to dwell in you and you're gonna go out into this world and you're gonna demonstrate and declare my excellencies. People used to come to the temple, but now my spirit is gonna be in you and you're gonna be temples going everywhere so that my name would take over. When Mary saw Jesus in the garden, she thought he was a gardener. Now here's a little biblical theology, okay? Adam was supposed to be a gardener. He was supposed to take the presence of God and bring it to the ends of the earth. What happened? He fell down on the job. He believed a lie. He was cast out of the garden. Now we have a new gardener who rises from the dead, whose job is to take the garden, the presence of God, and bring it to all of the earth. And how's he gonna do it? Through his spirit dwelling in you. That's it. There's no option B. There's no plan B. It's God's spirit dwelling in God's people to be temples of God everywhere. That's his plan. This is why you're here. This is why you're in Montreal. Not for a contract, school, family, none of that. You're here because God, before the foundation of the world, predetermined that you would be here at this time in this place to display, declare, demonstrate who he is to the people that you encounter on a regular basis. That when we see the presence of Jesus, we see potential instead of being locked up in fear. It's only understanding and believing the presence of God is with us all the time that will move us out of this fear. And, and here's what I do. Uh, I, I'm fearful often. I really am. I'm fearful of conversations most often. I get intimidated with people uh, who have far superior intellect than I do. There's only a few, um, but I mean, just, I'm just joking completely. Um, but I, I, I do, I, I feel fear of man moving in me. And so here's what happens, that the spirit of God reminds me that God is glorious, so you don't have to fear anyone. And so there in that moment, I, I see, I mean, visualizing, God next to that person. God fully approves of me. God's presence is there. His spirit of wisdom is dwelling in me. And I just say, God, give me wisdom to answer the way I need to answer. And I don't fear that person anymore. You'd be the smartest person in the world. I, I don't care. You'd be the most influential person in the world. I don't care because someone more important, more influential than you is there with me. And he loves me and he's for me. And he wants for me to minister to you. And so God is there, so we don't have to fear. He's so glorious that we don't have to fear others. And lastly, the third encounter. 
So we saw lingering, we saw fear, and now we see unbelief. Uh, John 20, verse 24 to 28. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Right, Thomas was full of unbelief. And there's, this is something that maybe a few of us here, uh, maybe many people who are here uh, who struggle with unbelief that I just don't believe this but what's your condition? What is your condition? Thomas had a condition, unless I put my hand in, in the nail holes inside, I, I will not believe. Have you ever said that condition out loud to God? I, I'm not telling you he's going to meet your condition necessarily, but have you ever at least said it out loud to him? Have you pursued him in that way? I'm so full of unbelief, I have nothing to lose. So God, if you're legit, if you're real, then, then here, would you do this? Would you do this in my life? And here's the crazy thing. Jesus actually met Thomas's condition. Can you imagine being God, right? Just for a second, many of us think we're God often, but can you imagine being God saying, I just sent my son to earth to die in place of you, Thomas? You got to follow him. You got to walk with him. I raised him from the dead. And now you're saying, yeah, I got one condition, right? If I'm God, I'm like, forget you, Thomas. I'll reach India a different way, right? Like I'll do things through other people. We have to see the kindness of God here, that, that Jesus comes through locked doors for Thomas to show himself to Thomas and say, okay, go ahead, put your hand. I mean, that's an awkward moment, right? It's a precious moment. You want to buy an ornament for your tree? Oh, and, and here, boys and girls, is when Thomas put his hand inside of the side of Jesus, right? Very awkward. Precious moments is awkward anyway. Um, Thomas Kincaid and precious, it's all strange. But Jesus met Thomas's condition. This is the kindness of God for those of us who unbelieve, move in unbelief. He lets a doubter touch his wounds and believe in him to the point where he just says, my Lord, my God. I mean, this is the power of God, is that he can take you as a doubter in this moment and in another moment change you to be a declarer and demonstrator of what his grace looks like. This is the power of God. And so I'll apply that in just a second. But Jesus, as he's talking to Thomas, he actually speaks a blessing for us. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is for us, that for those of us who have not seen Jesus, but who believe in who he is and what he's done, there's a blessing for us. There's a blessing, Jesus said it. And so I wanna invite you, there's this portal that's wide open this morning to move from unbelief into belief at least from being okay with unbelieving to exploring. And I tell my, my friends and people that I meet with who are full of unbelief, say, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I'm like, okay, great, just explore it. Just explore it. Because if it's not, if it's not true, then you should feel bad for me. Paul said it in the Bible. You should feel bad for Christians. 
But if it is true, then you're missing out on everything. You're missing out on eternity, literally, an eternity in the presence of God. This new creation that we all long for, you'll miss out on that. And so I wanna plead with you that if you're in unbelief this morning, that you would pursue with all your vigor, all your heart. Jordan, who came up here before and, and read scripture for us, he and his wife, Sandra, they lead something called an alpha group. I would say get with them. I don't know how many weeks it is, several weeks, where they explore Christianity and they give you a very fair shot to say, I wanna explore this further or no, this is bogus. Great, so you've put in your time, you've done that. But if you're full of unbelief, what do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose except your unbelief. And I believe in God's kindness, he would let you, in a proverbial sense, put your hand into his side and into his, into his hands because those wounds are for you. They're for you. So here you go, wrapping up. What's the condition of your heart today? Because this is a heart thing, not a head thing. Okay, this is a heart thing. The heart is, is the seat of affections. It's our motivational factory. Uh, if I can get your heart, I can get you to do anything. You really can Good marketing aims at the heart, right? So where's your heart today? What's the condition of your heart today? Is it in unbelief? Is it in unbelief? So what's your condition? What's your condition for God? Have you asked God to show you that he's real? My prayer when I became a follower of Jesus is, was this. Jesus, if you're real, I'm all in. If you're not, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow morning and that will have been like a hallucination and I'm gonna move on with my life. That was my prayer. You'll not, you will not find that prayer in the Bible. You will not find that in any sort of like sinner's prayer card that you're gonna get. That was my heart engaging with God. And, and God unlocked for me this belief that I didn't have. And everything was different. Everything changed. And it was because of him, not me. So as a condition of your heart on belief, would you, would you ask him to move you into belief? Secondly, is a condition of your heart one of fear? You fear, so you feel like you need to perform all the time. You fear losing your job. You fear that there's no uh, stability. You fear that you're going to be alone. You fear for the future that you may or may not have. You fear others. Well, this morning, Jesus would say, my peace be with you, and it's gonna rest on you, and it's gonna rest in you, and it's gonna leave with you. You see, the empty tomb, the empty tomb is a, a portal out of fear and into everything being made new. So this is what we get when, when we look and stoop inside of the empty tomb and see that Jesus is no longer there. He is, he is risen. We're invited to come out of our fear and to move into this pursuit of this new creation that God is doing. And lastly, when I was talking about Mary and lingering, are you saying, oh, I want that. I want to linger in his presence. I want to linger with Jesus. I believe that this morning the Lord can move you from content acknowledgement into a relationship of loitering. Moving from content acknowledgement into a relationship of loitering. You ever go to those places? I mean, as a kid, I'm like, what is loitering? Or loudering, or however I pronounce it. Um, but no loitering, everywhere, everywhere. Our condo complex, you know, somewhere in the bylaws, no loitering whatever. Um, 
loitering. But the Lord actually wants for you to loiter on his property. The Lord says, come and, and loiter on my property. Do chalk drawings all over the cement. Do it all over the brick. Do it on the window. Do graffiti. Like, do it all. Spray paint it up. Tag it up. Wish I was a professional tagger. That, some of that's amazing stuff. But the Lord wants for us to do that. He wants for us to loiter, loiter on his property. He wants for us to climb all over his throne. He wants for us to scream and yell that this is my dad who came and rescued me. He wants for this. He doesn't just want for content acknowledgement. He doesn't want for religious transactions. If that's your beginning point, awesome. If you're like, I've never read the Bible, I just started reading, it's a lot for me to get through John 20, shut the Bible, awesome. That's an evidence of grace that God is changing you, but don't stay there. This is meant to be a portal into relationship with him. It really is. Prayer is not about transactions being answered or not answered. It's about our hearts being changed by sitting in the presence of God. That God's plan for your life is for you to linger and loiter all around his throne of grace and for you to become more and more like him. And John ends this chapter with this and we'll end with this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I can't wait to know the other signs that Jesus did. I, I'm so stoked to find that out one day. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's where we end. The, the one and only God is alive and says to you this morning, I want you to linger in my presence. What an invitation. If Justin Trudeau invited you, regardless of your political affiliation, to, to go and, and chill with him, you, you most likely would. You would go and linger and hang out and do whatever he does, right? It's a pretty important person. The one and only God says, I want for you to come and linger with me and to end up looking just like me. And then I want to tell the whole world through you. This is epic. This is amazing. This is what we're gonna to celebrate today. And so I, I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna explain responding. Don't, don't run out. Don't go get your kids. They're fine, most likely, okay? Um, you haven't seen your little number flash up. They're doing all right. All right, so I'm gonna pray. We'll respond um, and I'm excited for that. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a great, powerful, mighty God. You are the one that is in charge of everything that takes place. You are the, the great ruler and reigner. You're the one that calls for us out of our fear, out of our unbelief to come and linger in your presence. Would you help us to respond this morning? We need you for that and we love you. Amen.